You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series will feature 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is the 10th interview that we've released as a part of this series. Dr. Mark Plew is a professor of anthropology and archaeology at Boise State University. He has spent a significant portion of his career conducting research in the Snake River Plain, and has spent more time investigating archaeological sites within the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA than any other archaeologist in history. In this oral history interview, Dr. Plew outlines a number of key insights into the ancient history of human occupation in the Snake River Canyon, as well as discussing the politics surrounding archaeological research in this area. Well, I'm Mark Plew, archaeologist who here at Boise State for a number of years, and southwestern Idaho is an area that I have a lot of uh, experience with. I actually did my doctoral dissertation research here many years ago in the Owyhee country, so quite familiar with the area and done a lot of work uh, in and around off the uh, Snake River in western Idaho, which of course includes the Birds of Prey area, so quite familiar with that. Excellent. So do you have a memory of first being introduced to that area? Well, I do in some ways. In the archaeological context, I think there are always specifically individual sites that everyone knows about in a context. And so you typically, when you're the new person coming into the, into the area, uh, those always are kind of pushed at you, I think. And so there are a number of sites within the, uh, the, the general area of Western Idaho, but certainly within the Birds of Prey area, that are quite notable. Um, so I think from that point of view, yeah, you know, I kind of remember the fact that uh, uh, sites like Shalbach Cave, which is well known among within the archaeological community, a sort of fishing cache, a cache of fishing gear, something that I remember being exposed to early on, and that kind of probably, uh, you know, tipped my interest a little bit in the area generally. Cool. Can you bring us to that time and place when you visit an important site like that for the first time, when that's your area of interest and your focus of research, and you get to visit this well-known site with artifacts? What's that like? Well, I think it's kind of unusual. The archaeological record of any area is replete with many sites, but not necessarily the sites that, you know, sort of uh, piques everyone's attention. So I think when you visit those sites, it really does kind of um, engender something that's a little bit apart from, you know, a lot of the uh, archaeological reconnaissance that we do, where we see archaeological properties or archaeological sites, but they're not sites that, you know, sort of jump out at you. So when you visit these locations that everyone knows, everyone's written about, talked about for many, many years, you know are unique and somewhat special in regard to what they represent, yeah, they're kind of special. What is the significance of the protection that the Birds of Prey NCA has for archaeological resources, right? Because the area was protected. Everybody talks about, you know, the Birds of Prey and the wildlife that use that area. And that's the main reason it was set aside and protected. But there must be benefits. That protection must 
benefit archaeological sites as well. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. It's one that's often overlooked. I mean, the reality of it is anytime we have a set of protections that are in place, for whatever reasons, they have a tendency to protect archaeological properties. And I think the Birds of Prey area is unique in this regard uh, by virtue of its history and the extent to which the agencies responsible and their partners have moved to try to protect all of the resources, including the archaeological cultural resources. You know, in my years in Idaho, and I've done a lot of work here, um, I don't think that we probably ever worked at an archaeological site or examined an archaeological site that hadn't in some way already been vandalized or damaged by a human agency. And then I think the one thing that happens when you have the kind of protection that's been afforded to this particular area, the birds of prey, regardless of what the resources are, it has a tendency to add an additional layer of protection. You know, the very fact that people know that there's a lot of coming and going there, that the BLM, for example, is fully aware of where all of the archaeological sites are. They visit them periodically. There are other entities that are equally concerned about visiting some of those locations, monitoring them, and the potential impacts to them, I think it's incredibly important. So those protections that you speak to are incredibly important uh, to maintaining uh, the protections of the archaeological resources, which, unlike, frankly, some of the other resources that are in the area, are irreplaceable. Absolutely two main areas of interest that I want to get out of this interview. One is the history of discovering significant sites within the Snake River Canyon area. And then, obviously, I want to get into the geology itself. Like, what do those sites tell us about the people sure. that, that used to live there? But when was it first recognized that the Snake River Canyon area was an area that had these significant archaeological sites, mm. like areas that could right. inform us about past human settlement in the area looked like? Well, I think there, in, in terms of this particular area, I think there are probably two investigations that are significant. One of them is the investigation by Lewis Shelbach that discovered the, what's now known as Shelbach Cave. If you go back to the 1920s, this was the late 1920s, early 1930s, mid-1930s, a lot of American archaeologists are operating in a sort of diffusionist way, looking at the major culture areas like the American Southwest, and then looking out beyond that geographically to see if, in fact, there was an apparent influence. So here in Idaho, for example, in the Shelbach Cave, expedition is a good example of this. Schaubach from the Hay Foundation in New York came looking really for Pueblo and Anasazi evidence. Didn't find that, but regardless, he did find Schaubach Cave. Uh, it remained unreported until 1967 when um, Swanson at Idaho State University actually took the field notes and so forth and wrote up a little report on it. Uh, because it's a cache of fishing gear, and in the context of all of the sort of mythic history about uh, local ethnographic historic uh, native populations utilizing, you know, uh, salmon fishery and so forth, it's quite notable. It's unique and is really the only site that contains a cache of fishing gear on the Snake River Plain. So it's unique in that regard. In the same time frame in 1931, Irwin was working with the Smithsonian Institute, came to Idaho, and was specifically recording uh, petroglyphs, recording rock art. And so the earliest recording of rock art sites in Idaho was done by, by Irwin. Uh, put numbers on a number of those sites. Some of those numbers still exist in some places. At any rate, uh, he's looking at a number of different locations and a number of the sites that he recorded and was published in uh, a report that was produced by the Idaho State Historical Society during that time frame in 1930 um, brought a lot of attention to the area as well. 
The other somewhat interesting discovery is a bit earlier. It's late 19th century, as you may be aware. There was a figurine reported from an excavation, not a formal archaeological excavation. It's an inadvertent discovery, supposedly, in the 1880s, which was purported to have come from really early sedimentary contexts, a time frame much earlier than there was any presumption that people had arrived in the New World at that point in time. This found its way back east, Putnam and so forth. It was in the head of the um, Bureau of American Ethnology. And he actually sent a team to Idaho to inspect the location and so forth. Well, it turns out that the figuring is not prehistoric. I think the State Historical Museum still holds it. And you can actually go see it by a point, but as I remember, but regardless of the fact that it's, it's a hoax, um, most importantly, it did bring early attention to the area. And then building on that late 1920s and the early 1930s, these more formal investigations really kind of set the course. The 1880s figurine, you know, quote-unquote discovery. The, it's known as the Nampa figurine. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the, it, it, it was a hoax or it just wasn't, like, dated properly like it's, was, it, was it an actual artifact or well it's sort of an artifact yes it is a little <laughs> figurine a little tidy fill um yeah it's widely considered not to be a prehistoric artifact Gotcha. Yeah. So define prehistory for us. Well, prehistory is different in different places, you know. Sure. Prehistory here is quite a bit apart from what it is in the American Southwest or certain areas of the eastern woodlands, you know. So it depends entirely. Uh, it's formally uh, a period anywhere in the world prior to written records. Okay. Gotcha. I'm a little curious about the Shellbach Cave. Um, I think of things that you commonly think of as artifacts, and I feel like fishing gear is something that you know, after 5,000 or 10,000 years, like it would just be gone. So like what physical pieces, like what did they find in that cave? Is it uh, nets and hooks or like what kind of gear? Yeah, it is. It includes a, a lot of the things you'd expect to find in a tackle box. There are fish hooks, there are barbers, there's fishing line, there's some netting, a variety of different things. Um, all of this has been reported in this piece that Swanson published in 1967 in the, the, the old Idaho State Journal, uh, Tabiwa. There are apparently some other items that are still back. The collection is largely still back in New York. Um, uh, some items that are not included. There's a large hook, for example, bone hook, um, that was apparently in the collection. I've not seen that, but I'm told by a couple of people who have seen the collection that, in fact, that's the case. So it's a very formidable collection. It's interesting from the point of view, the collection itself is associated with the remains of 17 Chinook salmon that uh, were described by Shellbach as having been sort of layered up in some fashion with what he described as hay, I think, but just grasses. Um, and <clears throat> so they were apparently trying to preserve those fish, I'm assuming, for short term, obviously. They would not have lasted very long in that context. Uh, what's unusual about it is that it is a cache I mean, there are no others on that plane at all. And it's the kind of material that you would expect, as we typically talk about it, to have been curated. In other words, they would have taken it with him. I mean, you go to the river to fish, and you don't leave your tackle box. There may be an inadvertent loss of a you know, sinker. Um, but So that, that makes it you know, kind of interesting, hmm. a little bit beyond. Yeah, what happened to those fishermen? <laughs> <laughs> all right, right. 
So how about your research? Have you conducted archaeological research in the Snake River Canyon area? Yeah, in the Canyon area generally. In Western Idaho, we've done a lot of work over the course of the last 25 years. And we've explored a number of different sites within the NCA proper. Mm -hmm. And these are sites that date largely within what archaeologists locally refer to as the late archaic. So it's roughly the last couple of thousands of years up to the historic period, which is kind of gray. Um, There are some sites that appear to be habitation sites, although they're probably short-term. Keeping in mind that most of the folks, including the the known historic populations of the area, they're highly mobile, uh, fairly uh, diffuse distributions, and um, so they're hunters and gatherers, foragers in particular, so they're moving about a good deal. But some of these sites are probably habitation sites. Some of them uh, are more special use sites, which would include the rock art sites that are within the reach. So a little bit of everything. It's uh, typical of the range of sites that you find on the Snake River Plain generally, mm-hmm. which culturally is kind of Great Basin culture. We're geographically, clearly, environmentally not part of the Great Basin proper for the most part, but uh, it is culturally Great Basin, and it's fairly late for the most part. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of evidence. There are some structures. These are residential structures that have been identified in the area, and there are actually a couple of them within the NCA. So that speaks to at least some occupations that are probably slightly more formidable. Mm-hmm. Probably seasonal. There's actually a site, as you're probably aware, at uh, Swan Falls, for example, that Ken Ames originally did some work at. There's been some more recent work done there by Idaho Power. It's a late archaic context again. There is a structure, as I remember, about a thousand fish remains and so forth. So there's clearly a little bit of fishing going on. For the most part, materially, you know, the assemblage is very common to what you find across the Snake River Plain, generally. In terms of the diet breadth, that is the species that are being taken and, you know, are on the menu, deer and rabbits again, as is common across the plain, are the primary species. You get a little bit of mix here and there. Relatively speaking, it's very much like what you find in western Idaho generally. A nice window to that range. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to sort of paint a picture. If we were to look at this particular area, Snake River Canyon region generally, and to just look at to what degree humans were inhabiting, living, hunting, gathering, were present on the landscape, right? You mentioned that most of the archaeological sites only go back a few thousand years. Could you speculate about even earlier human inhabitants of the area? Well, we know something about the general earlier use of occupations of the Snake River Plain. Mm-hmm. Um, we have sites that date in the range of ten to 12,000 years. Okay. Okay. The earliest sites and those that are well-known generally, that would be Wilson Butte Cave outside of East. Eden, Idaho, generally speaking, and these are lava tube contexts. Those are the earliest documented Clovis era sites. Actually, the site, the Wasden site, is better known because of a purported association of Clovis materials. These are the earliest uh, sort of artifacts that identify the, the really early occupations in the area with uh, mammoth remains, which is not an association that's known anywhere else in North America. That is a purported association, but regardless. But the occupation dates back into this very early t- time frame. We have evidence of Clovis fossil materials, these are the earliest uh, horizons in the area, that are found across the state. Uh, The thing that's interesting about them is that, for the most part, they're of isolates. And there's recently been a kind of rethinking about the nature of Clovis anyway. Clovis hunters originally thought of as hunters. Clovis points were thought as hunting weapons. Some of us have always been doubting of that. 
There are a number of caches that have been found in the region generally in the last 30 years that are beginning to change that view. The earliest of the Simon Clovis site cache up at Fairfield, Idaho. This is an inadvertent discovery back in the 1960s. Idaho State did some follow-up work. It's unclear exactly about the time frame. Now these have been found in Montana and Washington, Wenatchee area most recently. And there's a, an emerging view that Clovis is maybe not about hunting at all which makes a lot of sense if you think about the realities of uh, hunting elephants with Clovis points. But regardless, there's an emerging sense that, in fact, this may be part of a ritual exchange uh, system that has little to do with hunting activities at all, along with a number of other things that are kind of coming to light in that regard. The thing that's interesting is that the greater body of evidence of that occupation are just isolates here and there. You know, we have no Clovis site, for example, in Idaho. So when you we say Clovis isolates, you mean they're, they're... Literally just that. They're isolated Clovis points and right. Folsom points that people have found in various right. you know, locations. I We reported on one from the Big Springs area out in Owyhee County, for example, a number right. of years ago. So you have that kind of thing, but there's no formidable occupation at all, which may speak to the fact that, you know, uh, even their presence here and there dropped on the landscape has more to do with uh, some sort of exchange scheme than it does uh, hunting activity. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I've read talks about how these closed points that are very similar, despite the fact that they're spread out all across the continent, right? And so that's been used as evidence that this was the time period when humans were introduced to the continent, right? This shows that must have come from a small group that quickly spread out and they all used the same points because they all derived from the same people. And then slowly as people settled... The points change, well, right? A, I mean, is that... That's like, a very traditional view. It's not okay. a view that most of us adhere to any longer. Okay. As we become, I'd like to think, substantially more critical in our assessment of these matters. Sure. Uh, you know, when I was an undergraduate student, uh, the tradition, the convention rather, was that, you know, people probably under some sort of dramatic pressure, which makes no sense at all, of course, given the fact that these are hunters and gatherers, rarely find themselves in situations where they're at risk by virtue of diminishing resources. They just move on and do something else, right? It's well documented in the, in the global archaeological record. But the convention was they'd come over in waves across the Bering Straits, you know, 10, 12,000 years ago and so forth. We now think that there are probably a number of different migrations. The DNA evidence relating to early uh, Paleo-Indian populations, as we refer to them, suggests that there are probably at least two gene pools that arrive, probably at somewhat different times. Whether they're explorers or something else, that remains to be seen. Many of us, and this uh, emerged, it would have been heresy, you know, 50 years ago, but, you know, 30 years ago, people like Ruth Groon, who worked at Wilson Butte Cave here, and Fladmark, Canadian archaeologist, began to talk about the probability, or at least the possibility, of folks having come over by watercraft along the coast. That is a view now that's widely accepted for a lot of obvious reasons. And, you know, you have canoes and so forth in Europe 35,000 years ago. And you have to think about, which we didn't 50 years ago, but we do now, why it is that people came to the to North America in the first place. You know, it's probably not because of diminishing resources. There's so few of them, and the resources are known to have been prolific anyway from those areas where they came. They were maritime adapted probably to begin with. And, you know, a lot of the computer simulation models that look at this now, as we kind of better understand what that environment probably looked like, and we actually in the early 90s, you know, discovered about a 400 square mile section of it, of the original Beringian surface. It didn't look like it was probably as bad as we always made it, you know, in those national geopics. That may explain why you have people finding their way all the way down to South America so quickly, where we have much, much earlier evidence of Paleo-Indians. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if you think about uh, Monteverde, for example, Chile, a good example of, 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 of a number of problems. If you look at what's going on there 15,000 years ago and what's going on in Idaho 15,000 years ago. Right. So like 15,000 years ago, we, like we know there were people there are people here in, in South America. Like, do we know there were people here in Idaho, too? Yeah, people were here. 15, yeah. Probably. 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 Right. It's entirely possible that, you know, people could have been here. Uh, and actually witnessed the Bonneville episode, you know, could have been. We don't have any evidence of that, obviously. Sure. Uh, and it doesn't fit the archaeological timeline as we presently know it in Idaho. But if you look at Monteverde, for example, in the Chilean archipelago, I mean, here you have people living in structures. They're utilizing a broad range of things, up to 50 different species. You already have, you know, the bola and so forth. Uh, clearly far more formidable than what's going on here. And you have to explain anyway how generations move a lot of geographic space in a short amount of time, but it helps to explain why it is that you have these really early occupations in South America. Mm -hmm. So the first direct evidence of people here in Idaho in this area is 10 to 12. Yeah, it's 10 to 12, yeah. basically. What do we know about the people that were here 10 to 12,000 years ago? To be perfectly honest, we don't know a great deal. You know, much of what we think about that occupation is based on analogy, looking at or having looked at indigenous populations and environments that we think are probably fit to the one that is known to have been current here 10 to 12,000 years ago. The idea that they are hunters, it's been a hard one to move away from. What we've come to understand through ethnoarchaeological research largely, I think, in the last 40 years, is that hunters and gatherers are what they're dependent largely on small to medium-sized game. And the, the idea, anyway, that uh, people are, you know, dispatching elephants with clovis is pretty hard to believe. Different, of course, and apart from the likelihood that they may have scavenged them. When I was an undergraduate student, the idea that anyone would have scavenged anything was just not... You know, now that we understand and we've you know acknowledged that in fact most hunters and gatherers scavenge if it's convenient and productive, that seems a far better explanation. Furthermore, there's no real evidence of you know, some of the sites that were you know formally purported to be hunting sites in regard to Clovis contexts. I don't know how clear that is. And that's and you mentioned one site like that in Idaho, right? One site that has an association with. Mammoth. Well, there is. The, the Wazen site actually has uh, the upper portion of the deposit dates to 70,000 years ago, so it's on that kind of at the edge of the what we call early archaic end of the whole thing. There are some really early dates and a purported association of Folsom points, which are the, that's the, the spear point technology that follows Clovis, so it's a little bit more recent, 9 to 10,000 kind of time frame. We don't have a Clovis site. Wilson Butte Cave, which was investigated by Ruth Groot from Radcliffe College, the Women's College of Harvard, late 1959. She found no Clovis material, but did find very simple stone tools in what they refer to stratum C and reinvestigated in the early 1990s. Association with extinct horse and camel remains. And that's a far better association, I think, in terms of what people are probably hunting if they're hunting to any great extent during that early period of time. So we don't have any Clovis sites. We have Clovis points and Folsom points here and there, and probably many more than we know. Bonnie Pitplato, who was formerly at Utah State, undertook some survey work down in southeastern Idaho. One of the things she was doing was engaging with local populations or local folks and looking at collections from that area. I think there was well over 50 additional uh, Clovis Folsom materials that, you know, and just in the course of a couple of summers of working, uh, you know, talking to people and so forth. But again... They all appear to be largely isolates. So there really aren't any um, Clovis sites here. Well, you begin to see some changes in terms of the environmental shifts that we begin to pick up 
and there's not enough sort of paleo, you know, climatic environmental data to support all of this. We begin to see some changes around eight to 10,000 years ago. You know, you've still got coniferous forests north of Idaho Falls, for example, in that time frame. And then you begin to see these somewhat more arid periods. Four to 5,000 years ago, you have a pattern emerging relatively similar to what we find in the most recent time frame prehistorically, which is common in the Grand the Birds of Prey area. Basically, by 5,000 years ago, I think we could reasonably describe most of the populations as being seasonally transhumant, meaning that they're just moving from one location to another in a series of rounds. Ethnographically, historically, as we know, something about the local populations, the uh, Western Shoshone, the Northern Paiute in this area, we know that many of them wintered in these larger canyon areas, the Owyhee, uh, the Snake, and so forth, and then seasonally made these movements classically to, you know, Fairfield and Camas Prairie, that kind of thing, and then kind of cycled back or circled back to the major canyons in the fall winter period. That pattern of transhumance is one that doesn't really go away, even into the later period of time. There are probably some population increases uh, that account for, if you look at 5,000, 2,000, 1,000 years ago, you see more sites, you know. The problem with that is it may reflect nothing more than people, you know, expanding the reach of their utilization. You see some, in terms of prey choice, you see some species beginning to become more prominent, for example, at the, the end of the Pleistocene, the early Holocene, and then that changes a little bit more. In the late archaic here, for example, one of the things that we, we see more of are bison, greater presence of bison, actually, in western Idaho than in eastern Idaho. You know, it's not what you would expect. These are woodland bison, which means that they don't herd like those guys on the plains, typically found in smaller numbers in a lot of different locations and so forth. But I think the pattern generally is pretty well established by what we call the Middle Archaic, so four or 5,000 years ago. You know, population densities would have been very, very low. Krober, the American anthropologist, and Julian Stewart, who actually is responsible for the ethnographer who writes about Western Idaho, they both argue that Western Idaho, Hawaii country in particular, had a population density of one person for 16 square miles. So if you run the numbers, Hawaii County is one of the second largest county in the United States, lower 48. There's some place in Texas that's slightly larger, 7,000 square miles. You know, there's a lot of people that never saw anybody else out there, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that transhuman pattern, which would have shifted around to probably over time, you know, you've got really low densities of sites. Population density pre-European contact is very interesting, right? Because the impact humans were having on the landscape and what did this area look like? How prominent were humans on the landscape? How were they influencing the environment at that time? The debate about population size, mm -hmm. if you go back to the 1930s and 40s, there's a lot of back and forth. Uh, Krober and uh, some of the other anthropologists of the period uh, arguing for, in some areas, really large populations. Now, you know, a little easier to buy if you're talking about the Incaic context in South America and the Peruvian context, for example. Yeah, 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 we have more people there. Although the population estimates are probably not even close to those that were run by Krober and others in the period. I mean, some of those population estimates are just ridiculous in terms of what we know now about 
about the nature of the archaeological record and uh, what you can reasonably argue off of that. Uh, there have been in recent years a number of people, Ravanovsky comes to mind in her book, uh, Vectors of Death, where there's been an argument that, uh, sort of pan-disease you know, sort of argument that occurred and is well documented in a number of different contexts, particularly in areas like the Caribbean, for example, to some extent South America, and in the American Southeast, where we know that there's a significant decimation of some populations within a very short interval. Uh, largely probably due to smallpox. But Ramanovsky has argued, and a number of people have been on this sort of theme or with it, that um, some of these diseases uh, actually have probably gotten into these areas, some areas, prior to contact. I mean, we do know that, you know, ethnographically, uh, in, in a number of areas in the West, but here as well, that people did aggregate, uh, you know, during the winter period. Now, whether or not that means they're living right next door to one another, that's another matter. But they are aggregating. And that probably has to do with, you know, a whole lot of issues that include, among other things, uh, access to game and so forth, to firewood, which have been incredibly important. We only worry, concern ourselves, you know, about the diet, what's on the table. But in the winter period, you know, fuel would be as important, if not more important in some ways, you know. Everything else is aggregating with you during the winter period. Matters of storage uh, are not an issue in quite the same way, you know, depending on the technology, the strategies that you're utilizing. Um, but, I, you know, I just think these populations are probably pretty small. And, and uh, the winter period of winter aggregation, though, is well known across a lot of different cultures, mid-latitudes and into the Arctic. It's that period where exchanges take place at a variety of different levels, and not just trade, but exchange in terms of, you know, knowledge about different uh, settings and the availability of different resources and that kind of thing. So people are probably encountering, you know, one another, particularly if, in fact, the transhuman models that have been utilized here, they have some reality to them. If people are, everybody's going to Camas Prairie, then I'm sure somebody ran into somebody else. But for the most part, these are very small populations, and we don't have anything in the archaeological record that would suggest anything more than that the average domicile is probably, yeah, 8 to 12 people most of the time. You talked about population density, like, like one person for ever, however many square miles is like nothing, but it's not like one person is living in every, you know. No, that's right. Yeah, sure, sure. And you could have gatherings like where there, there are substantial numbers of people, right? Um, well, you could. Um, we, we have no evidence of that having occurred ethnographically. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of becomes the standard, you know, in, in, in lieu of the, the absence of any archaeological data. I'm not sure what that data would be anyway, you know. Right, sure. Yeah, you know, that's just the problem. And if, if in fact, we have highly mobile populations that are, as Benford used to talk about, kind of mapping on to resources as they go, and that doesn't mean that they're just moving all the time and every day. I mean, one of the things we're finally beginning to think more critically about now is, well, how long does a, you know, mobile forager stay in one location? You know, that's going to be seasonal probably. It's going to depend upon any number of factors. In the case of the salmon fishing business, you know, that's a temporarily constrained period of constrained availability. Um, Does that mean that, you know, those because they'd be foragers, the folks that are doing that, presumably. Um, So are they there for three weeks, a week? I mean, that's part of the problem, too. The archaeological landscape here is very thin in a lot of different ways. There are very few structures, for example, that have been documented across the plain. Uh, most of them actually in western Idaho, and some of them in the NCA, as you know. Um, 
But we don't have a lot of evidence of formidable, but I think you have to look at it, taking into account the greater picture. Every site doesn't have a, evidence in archaeological type of structure. Then you have sites like, what, Wilson Butte Cave, and you have sites like Shawbog Cave. You know, there's clearly something going on there that's beyond. Um, whether or not we are recovering it in all contexts, you know. I did a paper a number of years ago looking at the archaeological evidence for storage on the Snake River Plain, and we looked at about 90 excavations. There are only 10 sites that have any evidence of anything that could be called a storage pit. And I think of the 10, there's maybe only one that actually documents in-ground storage. And that, you know, clearly nothing more than a very short-term you know, facility. So what's that mean? Well, you know, I think it largely means that we're probably not looking in the right places. We're not taking into account that within the Birds of Prey area generally, there have been a couple of really notable finds made in the last 20 years in the Talus. A ceramic right. vessel, part of a cradle board, you know, I mean, some other things. Those are known to be locations where, you know, things were stored and also uh, individuals were buried sometimes in the uh, regional literature, ethnographic literature. But they're not places that we go. You know, we're digging in what, for the most part, the majority of the sites that we've looked at in the NCA and in western Idaho generally are of a particular type, you know. Mm -hmm. And they're not sites that are probably going to produce that kind of evidence. So if you look at the field this way, very broadly, looking at the range of things that have been identified, then you find that, you know, there's a lot going on here. There's the Weezer Burial Complex, for example, this really unique pattern up in the Weezer area. That suggests exchange, fairly developed funerary rites uh, about 5,000 years ago. Exchange and exotic materials, I mean, there's a lot of things like that. The Damas, essentially, cemetery uh, by New Meadows, which now is even is being interpreted as actually potentially representing a context in which you have hunters and gatherers collecting dead and returning to a common location, something that would never have been entertained up until very recently. <laughs> so I think that's how you have to look at the record here. You know, uh, it, it's like the Great Basin generally. You know, I mean, there's some phenomenal things in the Great Basin. And incredible evidence here and there of these really incredibly unique ways of exploiting locally available resources and so forth. Use of high altitudes, all sorts of things. But it's here and there. Idaho's like that. The Snake River Plain. I mean, there's a lot of evidence of a lot of incredible stuff going on here. Of a broad and very diverse material culture. Varied strategies that are employed over a long period of time. But the record itself is not a record that you know. It's not the same kind of record in the American Southwest or the Eastern Woodlands. Interesting. But equally diverse. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? And, you know, we're so limited by, as you said, you can make some discovery and it could totally shift the perspective that we have towards how people lived on the landscape two or three or four or five thousand years ago, right? I think we have a general idea. I think it's mm -hmm. fair to say that we have a pretty good idea of mm -hmm. when people were here, mm -hmm. where they were. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we can uh, speak reasonably to a period of five thousand years ago as to where we have greater evidence of human use of the landscape. That's easy enough to do at some level. <laughs> but then you have the problem of sampling. Sampling is a problem across the board in regard to so many different disciplines of problem in archaeology. A single excavation can produce evidence that can be very informing or very misleading for that matter in the sense that the average hunting and gathering camp globally is about 100 square meters as I remember. 
so it's not a terribly large area. But depending upon, you know, where you drop in the test units and undertake the excavation, recover what's there, you know. And if the processing area is uh, distant from where you are, you know. And then zooarchaeological evidence, for example, or data, you know, the faunal remains, which are very common in most archaeological sites here, find a lot of it. A lot of it's highly fragmentary and so forth, but, you know, it reflects what? Presence and absence at the end of the day, which is influenced by sampling strategies and so forth, recovery techniques. Everybody's always assumed, you know, that in the Amazon, that's a flat line. Nothing changed forever, and the opportunities are pretty restricted by virtue of environmental contacts and so on and so forth. Yeah, until very recently, really deal with some of those issues. The isotopic analysis, you know, has enabled us not only to look at diet and to demonstrate using some other techniques, including, you know, radiographic examination of skeletal remains, looking for Harris lines in terms of nutritional deficiencies, that kind of thing, to develop an environmental history of that area that challenges all long-standing presumptions about, you know, what people were doing and how they were influenced by environmental change and so forth. So there's just a myriad of techniques that really are enabling. We just finished a report on a project that actually we were involved with many, many years ago, Danskin Rock Shelter, that you may be familiar with. Uh, one of the first sites that uh, Irwin recorded, in fact, that's location, one of the locations where his Smithsonian number still exists. <laughs> uh, deep stratifies up on the south fork of the Boise. Uh, it must have been a phenomenal, just a phenomenal site at one time. I was aware that actually it had been damaged in the 1930s by one of the founders of the Idaho Archaeological Society in another time and place. At any rate, the site is just completely trashed, but it has more bighorn sheep remains than any site in Idaho. And we did isotopic analysis of the sheep remains. And one of the things that emerged out of that, for example, uh, in terms of how all this is changing, is that we were able to identify two different sheep populations. Uh, we can't explain that directly from, we can think out about what that could reflect. But we have two sheep populations, you know. Right, yeah. Uh, right. Given what we know about why people were probably there is based on analogies that we you know, have some control of in regard to when people, you know, haunted bighorn sheep and so forth. So we kind of know what the seasonal context would have been and so forth. We presume that probably it's some sort of diminishing of the local resources, whether that's by maybe it's a fire event or something that reduces the forage and they're just not there for a while and then, they, you know, another group kind of finds its way into it. But a lot of simpler things that we didn't do when I started my career. We've gone back, for example, in the last decade and done XRF analysis of uh, geochemical analysis of obsidians from a lot of these sites. I mean, while the technique was actually pioneered, I think, in 1960 by some geologists, it didn't find an application in archaeology until really the late 1970s, early 1980s. And so if you were working during that period of time and everything that was done in Idaho prior to that period of time, you know, nothing, you know. And I don't know that that's going to change the course of human history in Idaho. But, <laughs> but that process detects the location of where the obsidian came from? It tells or? you where, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we can tell you exactly where the obsidian comes from. There are five major sources in Idaho, southern Idaho. The one locally here and the one that is most common in all these sites that are in the NCA is the, the one that's up by Emmett. It's the, called the Tipper Butte source. Okay. There's an Owyhee and a Owyhee 2 source. Is there a China Mountain? Is that uh, one, two out near Jackpot? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's the Malad source, there's Twin Buttes, there's a number of them, okay. but there are five major ones. You know, the kind of distance decay model of, you know, the 
further you get away from the source, the less of it you have. And kind of applies here. Most of the stuff here in Western Idaho is from Timber Butte. Although, down in the NCA, and we tested all the sites at Celebration Park, for example, you get a lot of stuff coming in from Eastern Oregon, really local sources. The problem with it originally, and when I was first here, we, uh, Ken Ames and I, uh, ran a bunch of stuff from the Payette area. And University of Idaho at that time had a XRF lab. I mean, it's not a terribly complicated technique, and it's fairly inexpensive to do, but they ran it all. Their machinery was uh, an out-kilter, and so we had to run it again, but most of it is coming from Timber Butte in this area. But the only problem with it is that, and they didn't take this into account, you know, 30 years ago, we do now, that, you know, to really have be able to control it at the level that you would want to, you have to keep in mind that any magma, any flow, is going to be what? It's going to be geochemically varied, right? And so they're sampling those now. So there are a couple of sources that bear goals, for example, often been discussed in this regard. Maybe it stands still as a separate type, but maybe it's kind of like the Owyhee 2 source, which didn't exist for a long time. There's just the Owyhee source. And when I first worked in the Owyhees, when I first came out here, and that's where I did my doctoral dissertation research, everybody said, oh, <laughs> there's, there are no obsidian sources out there. Not quite the case. <laughs> anyway, so there's a lot of ways that we can explore some of this that just weren't available 30 years ago. Right. Changes some things, it doesn't change other things. I mean, the problem with XRF is that, well, it's interesting to know that all of the obsidian that is at Swan Falls is coming from Timber Butte, but it doesn't tell you anything at all about how it got there. Right. Nothing. But I mean, it tells you there must have been exchange. Right? Yeah, sure, it tells you that there was some way that it got right, there. Right, exactly. The question is whether it is by direct acquisition, you know, mm -hmm. which seems unlikely to me in most cases. And I, I tend to think that obsidian, which is highly prized for production of largely projectiles, was probably acquired in seasonal rounds, these transhuman rounds, when people are in different locations near these sources for different reasons. One way that I could imagine that you would gather information, we've talked about a lot of these different methods and how different scientific developments and stuff can add new insight into old finds and all this stuff, but what about direct communication with Native American populations? This question would be directly from your experience. Do you talk to folks from the tribes to get insight into any of these research projects you work on, any sites or, or anything, you know? Well, let me frame my comments by saying, first of all, that when I first worked in Idaho, and for most of the time that I've been in Idaho, there was very little communication with tribes. There was no sense on the part of archaeologists that that was something that was really necessary. We had arbitrarily ended their sort of earlier histories in 1940. I mean, that's sort of a bench cutoff in the way in which ethnographers early in the 20th century thought about, you know, the history of Native tribes. And so there was no consultation whatsoever. That all changed at one level through a series of acts go back some decades, but particularly in the early 1990s with uh, congressional enactment of the NAGPRA of NAGPRA which set in motion a number of different things that have kind of changed the, the tenor of that engagement, coupled with the fact that in the 1970s, Richard Nixon, his uh, executive order, created a series of cultural, what we now talk about as cultural management positions in federal agencies. So Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, REC, and so forth, all for the first time saw cultural people on their staffs. 
Um, this happened pretty much along the same time as NAGPRA, which, among other things, as you know, required all of us, including Boise State, to do inventories of materials that we held. All of that then made available in terms of tribal considerations of whether or not they wanted to request for repatriation of any anything that we held and so forth. This ushered in an era during which the federal agencies began to, because a lot of overlap, obviously, between uh, those territories and uh, areas that are now held by the feds or overseen by federal agencies that were traditional tribal lands. So beginning really in the late 1970s, the early 1980s, you began to see some degree of consultation with tribes. In my own case, we have pretty consistently talked to tribal leaders. My greater involvement with it actually dates back into the 1980s with the creation of the so-called Wings and Roots consulting program. Wings and Roots was created primarily related to engagements that began with the Shopai the Shoshone Paiute at Duck Valley, as a means by which they wanted to be engaged in consultation. The first operation of Wings and Roots was actually with the Idaho Army National Guard, and I was involved with that. It was an interesting process. What the Guard elected to do was to bring the tribe in to early discussions and involvement in the development of their five-year plan, which has been updated God knows how many times now, but regardless, that had never happened here before. The University of Idaho with Roderick Sprague, who uh, ran that program for many, many years in the anthropology department, he, going all the way back to the 1960s, had actually worked with Nez Perce in terms of repatriation. So he was a pioneer in that regard, U of I was in that regard. But in this part of the state, that had not occurred. Duck Valley in particular is a little bit different because it was a very insular context. And a number of changes took place in the early 90s, not only NAGPRA, but for the very first time, tribes, of course, were essentially receiving their funding, not through BIA anymore, but directly. So a lot of changes that were taking place, you know, sort of politically. At any rate, the original Wings and Roots consultation involving Duck Valley and the Guard proved to be very successful from the point of view that the process led to something that had never happened before, which was that after a lot of back and forth where people were not happy with one another uh, in early negotiations, you know, we finally found common ground in terms of where we had agreement. And we were able to establish and, and acknowledge that there were areas that we probably would never have agreement on. But it led to a situation where when the document was finally completed, uh, the tribe signed off on it. You know, because they had been partnered. Um, its history now has kind of drifted off in a variety of different ways. Uh, a number of the agencies are still using it. Uh, the Guard, I think, is uh, is not using it to the same extent, but that has to do with other matters. Uh, BLM continues to consult in, in the Wings and Roots form. And so that's a, a state-run program, or is it just a volunteer kind of, like, who controls that Wings and Roots, or is it just sort of an informal... Well, it's, it's somewhat informal, but it was created in consultation between an advocate for the tribe and the Duck Valley tribe itself. There was a point, probably got now 15 years ago, where it was, in fact, we had a session here in Idaho or in Boise. Uh, Duard Walker, who you may be familiar with, the famous ethnographer, he was there. We both presented to DOD. And in fact, uh, Wings and Roots then became pretty common in a lot of locations with a number of different agencies from the U.S. Air Force on across the West. And I have been involved with it directly for the last probably five years. I can't tell you exactly where all of that is now, but it's still being utilized in Idaho and so forth. 
So part of the question was to what degree is our tribes consulted in, in this type of research? But like part of the question was also like, are you using the tribe as a resource to gather information? You know, like, do you go do interviews with like tribal elders to try to gain whatever information you can that maybe contributes to what you gain from a, a, a actual mm. physical site? Well, there are instances in which elders may be called upon to come in and sort of present on their observations about a particular context. A number of years ago, at the beginning of the Afghan War, um, <laughs> the uh, Air Force sought to, through the wings of the roots process, they sought to put up an emitter station, and uh, it was a very small area. We inspected it. There was very, very little archaeological evidence of much of anything. It was just a handful of lithic flakes within a very small area about the size of my office. But the elders were from Duck Valley, were brought in a couple of elders, and they looked at the site, provided their comments, which became part of a broader record, as it does in the context of NAGPRA, where, you know, on repatriation specifically, where even oral tradition is part of the play. I don't think it gets equal you know, representation, but regardless. So that happens occasionally. But I think the other part of this is the extent to which, and I think this is what you're begging, uh, the question you're asking at one level, is the extent to which archaeologists engage in much direct contact with tribal people uh, regarding their knowledge about this and that. And there are a number of different issues there, I think. For one thing, and, and I remember it being pointed out to me in early days in BLM, Wings and Roots context, where, you know, the tribal chairs said, well, you know, this was sort of a, a jab at uh, anthropologist, uh, fair one, uh, generally that, you know, our history didn't end in 1940. Uh, and indeed, we are aware that there are locations, for example, in the Oahe country uh, that are still visited by tribal elders. So, in part... Uh, oftentimes, there's no interest on the part of tribes to chat with you about certain things. You know, they don't want to share that. And there's probably been a greater history of that than we're really aware of, you know. One of the interesting things is there are a lot of early 20th century anthropologists, late 19th century folks, that tried to interview native peoples in regard to rock art. And there's almost, there's nothing that came out of that. And earlier, you know, several decades ago, people thought, well, that's kind of curious. But there's all this rock art everywhere in the Great Basin and nobody knows anything about it. More recently, people, and more critically, have come to think, that well, maybe that's because there was no interest in really talking about it for whatever reasons, you know, which I suspect is maybe the case at some level. I don't think most archaeologists think about doing that. The discussion that we have with tribal elders and, and representatives, uh, tribal chairs and so forth, or their SOPs are largely informal contexts, like the Wings of Roots context, where... Something is proposed, you know, there's an open meeting in which everyone can sit at a table and talk about how they feel about doing that. And that can result, well, the outcomes of those meetings are highly varied. Sure, yeah, sure. As you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think part of the issue at one level is that, uh, I don't know if it's an issue, but I think it's what's happened. The federal agencies, I don't think to any great extent, thought out very much about how to approach these issues early on. And so they now find themselves in a position where, you know, tribes may just do this in terms of individual cultural resource permits, mm -hmm. you know, just because. That was a history of mistrust. Right? It was a so, huge history yeah. of mistrust, uh, you know, fairly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, up until about 20 years ago, there was nothing on the part of, you know, and there are entities within the state, frankly, that I won't mention specifically, but, you know, have not been very tribal friendly from my point of view. You know, I don't have to agree 
with everything that people that I work with at Duck Valley. I actually have a good working relationship and have for many, many years with people at Duck Valley. But that's based in part upon the fact that we have been able to find our way to a point we know where we can go and where we can't go. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm bound to and bound by and how they see certain things, you know. And if we can find that common ground, that's the issue. And I don't know that we've been able to do that, uh, you know, across the board and in all instances. But part of it's time and place. Idaho State and the University of Idaho have had historically different relationships with those local tribal groups just by time. And, you know. Sure. So. I'm curious. I think you know, most people that are exposed to the archaeological history of the Snake River mm-hmm. area are exposed at Celebration Park. You talked about there's very limited information on the meaning behind the rock art that's present in the Snake River Canyon. Obviously, there's some great examples of that on display at Celebration Park. For folks like that who have maybe visited Celebration Park or maybe would consider visiting it in the future, you know, at sort of like a basic level, what could you say to folks like that as far as what they're seeing and the significance of what they're seeing and what it means, you know? It's a very formidable location. Certainly there are other areas where the rock art in Idaho is more impressive. There's some really incredibly impressive rock art. It's pictographic rock art in eastern Idaho uh, in the Lemhi country. Danskin Rock Shelter that I mentioned earlier has some just fabulous pictographic uh, rock art. Uh, bison mounted riders with, you know, plains headdresses and all that kind of stuff, which is relatively rare. There are a lot of uh, petroglyphic sites in western Idaho in particular. And it's a fair example of the range of things at a celebration park, which you see there is a pretty good example of the kind of thing, uh, kind of elements that are pretty common. But if you go just up the river, of course, you know, to Weiss Bar, then you've got something that's totally different very different by location and by uh, stylistic uh, elemental distribution, distributions of frequencies. The rock art, I believe, at Celebration Park, they talk about it being much older than it appears to be. The conventional wisdom is that most of it is probably late archaic. So again, it's at the last 1,500, 2,000 years. All the, everything that's there is uh, virtually identical to what you find in the Great Basin in Southern California generally. I mean, stylistically. Mm-hmm. There's a young woman that was formerly, she's a student here now at Boise State, but formerly at CWI, uh, was involved with a mapping exercise that CWI did there a couple of years ago. Also looked at map rock, that stuff there, and has done kind of a frequency distributional study that you may be familiar, may have seen, which suggests that there are some differences in terms of where things are and so forth. It's not entirely clear that those are anything other than just, you know, correlations that aren't terribly meaningful. But... Um, the range of, of common, you know, sort of Great Basin, Southern Idaho rock art is common there. How old it is. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's not like a particularly special site, but a site that's representative of this style that was seen throughout the Great Basin region. Yeah, you know, the presumption that most of us, I think, hold to about rock art is that particularly where you have these larger panels or some pretty incredible stuff out in the Owyhee country, for example. The locations where you in particular have what you have at Celebration Park, which is what? It's largely geometric stuff. There are other locations where you have um, plant representations and you have zoomorphic representations. So that in and of itself probably speaks to something. 
One of the things that we recognized when I was working in the Hawaii country originally is that you'd have these big panels. They're often associated with water problem or occupational sites, you know, habitation sites. And then you'd be out on the flats away from the little canyons where all of that was. And you'd periodically run into a boulder that would have a very specific orientation. It would have a certain kind of patina or patination. And there would be nothing associated with it. And the elements that were depicted there would be completely different and apart from what you'd find in these other locations. Wiley, the guy who's a rock art guy down at where he used to be at UCLA, you know, argues that those are shamans locations and, you know, rites of passage locations and that kind of thing. And they may well be. There is something of a, a regularity there, which we noticed many years ago. I can't tell you what it I can't tell you what it means. Part of the problem with rock art studies is that we, and, it, and this applies to, to uh, until much more recently, the Celebration Park rock art, is that while people have gone back and recorded a number of these locations, going all the way back to the early 20th century with Irwin, John Curtis, who was an ex-NASA engineer who revisited a lot of these locations back in the 1980s, what they haven't done is to examine the full complement of sites that we know are out there with an eye to looking at basically running the numbers on the, the, the stylistic variations and their distribution in regard to landscape features. You know, If you get to that point, uh, then maybe we can begin to think out about that a little bit more than I think we can right now. So absence of data. The thing about Celebration Park is what? We've got six sites there, that is habitation sites, and they're relatively thin in regard to what's there appear to be seasonal occupations, probably short-term occupations. They're not a lot of formal features. The rock art is the unique feature, probably representing, however, a lot of occupations or visits to that location over a period of time. It's not the kind of thing where anybody thinks that it was all produced, you know, at a point. Uh, and I would guess that's probably also the case with Wheat Spar, even though there's something different going on there, mm -hmm. you know. But again, it's like there's so many of these locations out there that nobody's ever looked at really and looked at in the right ways so that we don't have the kind of database that would allow us to begin to kind of look at that scape a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem with rock art is there's a lot of ooh-ah in it, you know, for some people. And I think a lot of professional archaeologists have kind of walked from it. There's a means by which some of it can be dated absolutely now, which was not the case some years ago. We're better at doing superimposition, dating, and a variety of other things. But at the end of the day, you know, interpreting rock art is intentionally troublesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like interpreting a work of art and trying to tease out what the meaning of the artist meant if they're long dead and, you know, like, yeah. Well, we've been recently looking at these cave and rather rock shelter sites in uh, South Rupununi of uh, Guyana near Brazil. And we're up in the mountains, and of course the common burial practice there is to deflesh body, which doesn't take very long, and then you put it in a big ceramic vessel. And we noticed that a lot of these sites had rock art, but it's this really nondescript rock art, this just kind of weird smudging, you know, and stuff. And, and so I was thinking about that for a long time, and then uh, I remembered some work that had been done with the Turkana in Colombia, and uh, went back and read through that, and this guy had studied shamans, and they take hallucinogens, and they produce rock art. And so he got into the uh, topic business of, you know, everybody who takes a certain thing sees it, it's like, you know, this kind of thing. And so we did a little paper, uh, you know, talking about that. Kind of fun to think about. So I mean, it's formidable rock art. There's a late archaic occupation there. Sites are pretty similar, but they document 
I think most importantly, the range of human use of that landscape mm -hmm. during the last 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. The only question I can think of at this point, kind of briefly coming back to the question of how first contact with Europeans affected people living on this landscape, because obviously there's a significant gap between first contact and European people settling, you know, attempts to settle mm, this sure. area. You know, there is this post-contact period where there's no direct observational stuff going on. Is there any archaeological evidence that points to what differences were going on during that period after post-contact, but before there was any actual direct interaction with people of European descent? You know, it's the one period uh, that we probably know the least about. Curiously, maybe. Right. There are really only four or five sites that have produced any evidence at all of even the time frame. You know, that site at Bliss that we worked at, one of the components there, we've got radiocarbon dated to the middle of the 18th century, so it would be the time frame during which we believe that the horse was introduced into Idaho from the U. Part of it, I think, depends on probably upon the geographic locale. If you look at some of the Lemhi country, that eastern Idaho, that area, one of the things that you find in a number of those locations that were investigated by Butler and Swanson back in the 60s, 70s, early 70s, there are items like you know metal tinklers, as they're called, for example, that are common in the Great Plains. And that's a period of time during which, shortly after the arrival of the horse, you know, the Weezer you know, the Northern Paiute Weezer group became banned and it become the Bannock, you know, are hanging out with the Lemhi Shoshone that Robert Lowy wrote about early in the 20th century. Those guys are moving out and they're acquiring all this plains gear and so forth. The extent to which all of that involves direct contact with Europeans, though, that's hard to say in the 18th century. We know who was here and wandering around, you know, in the early 19th century. The site at Three Island Crossing that we've worked at a number of times, Fremont Camp there, and I think in 1840. Well, you know, the whole area has evidence of, you know, metal projectile points and so forth of scavenging by the local, you know, population. Uh, but largely iron. But there's a big, we thought it was copper originally, bipoint that came from Thurano Crossing. It turns out it's brass. And Fremont used to trade in brass and so forth. But uh, regardless, we know very little about it. There's a little work in the American Bottoms outside of Pocatello that Rick Holmer did a few years ago that is military period history. But for the most part, we know very little about it. Just very few sites. And even though, you know, in western Idaho, with the trail crossing and so forth, you would think that in some of these, you know, late archaic sites, maybe like Bliss, where we do have an 18th century date, and we have worked bottled glass, that there would be more evidence of that. And it just really has been very, very little. Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, it's not obvious, it's not known from the historic record that we have a lot of early Euro-American types here. I doubt there really were. That's not to say that somebody wasn't here. That's probably the case. But I don't know how great the influence was. The introduction of the horse obviously made some difference. But then again, you know, most people didn't become mounted, so... Interesting. Yeah. You would have had situations, as are known historically, where, you know, early after the, you know, with the, like the Lamar Shoshone and those groups in the east, they're coming down to the Hagerman area, trading bison hides and so forth for fish initially, and then they just take over the fisheries. But then what happens there? Well, you know, people just go off and do something else. Something that we know from the Columbia, for example, where you have all the guys that are well known to be involved in the salmon, you know, industry. 
But then right next door, you've got people almost exclusively exploiting deer and other things, and so that kind of thing can be expected. But I don't know that they, we, we have very little evidence of, you know, Euro-American contact. Interestingly enough, you know, there are other areas, though, like in New York State area with the Algonquian populations. You know, there's an almost complete replacement of prehistoric materials, uh, utilitarian materials in particular, within a 20-year period after contact. Yeah, there are examples from yeah. other areas where, like, yeah, sure. it's, yeah, very it's quick. like you see, like, very quick shift in, you know, material usage, but also governmental systems, you know. Um, well, in some of those areas in New York, you know, Algonquian contacts would be a good example of this. Those are really highly organized groups, you know, when encountered initially. Some of the southeastern groups are like that as well. I mean, you know. Right, and I think that's where, you know, we were talking about, like, the effect of disease and, like, really dramatic population declines within that period of contact and settlement of Europeans. Well, if you take that and flip it to Idaho, you could have very, very few people here across the entirety of the planet, if you really think about it, even at that point of seeing Euro-American contact in a lot of other locations. And you'd have to question the extent to which the introduction of smallpox or measles would have been all that impacting upon a population like that anyway. Mm -hmm. Highly mobile, very diffuse. We have no archaeological record in some areas, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, I mean, this is kind of like a a side note, right? But I'm trying to remember where I read this, but it was a theory that was put forth that you mentioned documented increases in bison populations during Mm -hmm. the Little Ice Age, which obviously the Little Ice Age happens very soon after first contact with Europeans. And there are people that have, you know, put, put forth the theory that increases in bison populations, which happened all across the continent, roughly around that period of time, occurred because of declines in human population from disease, and there was a decrease in hunting pressure on the bison, and that's why they increased. Um, Yeah, I'm familiar with that, but, mm -hmm. you know, that's an idea that's been around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, what's-his-name's extinction, you know, argument about mammoth and all sorts of other, which I've always thought, I think most of us think it's just kind of ridiculous, the idea that human populations uh, were ever very important in terms of extinction. Look at what's happening right now. Of course humans are important for extinction. (laughs) Different time, different place. (laughs) You know, it's like Carl Butzer. Uh, This was an argument not only in the Americas, but uh, it was very common in Europe. You know, there's this notion that in the late Pleistocene, for example, that everybody was kind of like Julian Stewart's, God, it's awful to be a Great Basin person, you know, eking it out. There was this notion that, you know, in early Neanderthal times, things are just, you know, threadbare. And Butzer, you know, run the numbers on the, you know, all the paleo-environmental data and was able to demonstrate the productivity of these resources. It would have been so incredible that it's just ridiculous to think that humans would have, you know. I mean, it's different to some extent from the arguments that people have made about refugia. You know, where maybe you've got a small, isolated population of whatever, where their numbers could, I suppose, be reduced over time by human agency, but it seems highly unlikely to me. I mean, you look at the population numbers and these incredibly, uh, these really large numbers that have been estimated by some people earlier in the 20th century for the most part. I think everybody's come to realize that those numbers were greatly inflated. That, well, yeah, sure, there are more people in the Peruvian area or in central Mexico, you know, 5,000 years ago and in the late periods. For the most part, these populations are very small. 
what Stuart used to refer to as marginal, you know, populations, you know, undergirds all of those arguments about golden kingdoms and the Amazon kind of nonsense that Anna Roosevelt and Neil Whitehead and others, Heckenberg and that fool at Florida have, you know, sort of moved forward. And I think the population density is just generally very low, you know, because most people everywhere in the world for the greater length of time have been with their hunters and gatherers, you know. They're small numbers. They're highly diffuse. They do just keep going and mapping on. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> no resolution there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think to go back to the original question about the impact on the landscape, it's entirely how you measure it. It reminds me of the debate that you used to see 30 years ago, in particular, about pristine environments. Well, you know, if human footprint and the landscape changes that, and then there were arguments about all of that, then there aren't any pristine environments as soon as somebody arrives in North America. If you think about that differently in regard to the NCA, for example, in terms of our knowledge that people were there, they're clearly living there and so forth. I mean, you know, it's how we think about that imprint on the landscape in terms of what it's doing to the landscape. You know, did it alter it forever in yeah. some fashion? Is it damaging, you know, yeah. to the, you know, I don't know that you can make a case that that's... There's some truth to that, and there's a point to make there, right? Yeah, Which is I agree. This whole idea, like, oh, yeah, we need to preserve these areas. We need to preserve the NCA to make sure that it's protected from people in a certain light could be <laughs> yeah. perceived as like a lack of acknowledgement that this is an area that was inhabited by humans for thousands of years. Yeah, I agree. You know, whatever the specific circumstances under which different groups of people practicing, as far as we can tell, a pretty common life way for the last 10,000 years, not that things didn't change mm -hmm. and that there aren't some shifts perhaps related to climatic variance regionally and prey choice, that kind of thing. I think the really important and critical thing to remember is that, in fact, we have had people here for 10,000 years that have found their way, you know, to where they are presently. And even though, as anthropologists, we did end their history in 1940, they're still there on the landscape. They're not practicing the same life way that they were in Doug Valley 100 years ago. But frankly, they're not practicing the life way that I first saw when I was there 30 years ago. Everything's evolving and changing. Right, it's all, it's, all, yeah, so, yeah. it's all constantly changing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Who knows yeah. what, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a time that could cause you to wonder about certain things regardless. So, I mean, I think that is a, that's a good point. And I think we've historically wanted to think about, you know, people here and there. You get this argument in the Amazon where I work too, that people, you know, came in late and then you know, mucked everything up and so forth. There's no real evidence of that. And I don't think there's any evidence here, of archaeologically speaking anyway, that the populations that are well-known, particularly in the late archaic period, were altering that landscape too much. But again, it's how you want to measure that and think about it. Sure. But pretty successful, clearly, in terms of using it. Right. Clearly, they're... Whether or not they're yeah. managers, mm -hmm. you know, again, that's another matter. Right. You know? Well, I knew morally through, through my wife. Her family lived next door to the Nelsons. And her brother, my brother-in-law, who was a raptor biologist, was kind of a protege with Morley and worked the birds with him for years and so forth. So that's how I met him originally. We didn't have any, you know, formal academic connection. At sure, all, but sure. Yeah, it was just a friendly sort of... What was your impression of him? You know, my impression of him initially, as I'm sure a lot of other people have, is that, you know, he's just a nice guy, you know, pretty basic, very dedicated, you know, Dedicated in a way that, you know, his dedication didn't put people off, which I think sometimes happens, you know, when we have a passion about something. He was always able, from my point of view anyway, and in the conversations that I had with and around him, to be able to channel that a little bit differently, you know, to, to have that passion 
move it along, but in a way that, you know, the discussions are bridging and we're uh, developing sort of partnerships to the extent that I think Morley, you know, saw those as, as necessary in terms of being able to protect the birds. Mm-hmm. I wonder if your work and your archaeological research ever came up in any conversation. Like, was he curious about the archaeology of this area? That he was trying yeah, to actually, I, I remember Morley being interested in it. I remember him asking about it and so forth. I mean, you know, that, that area was widely known to a lot of people on the archaeological side. It has a long history of illicit collecting and that kind of thing. There are, I don't know if you've stumbled into these, there's some great tales about some former political officials here, including a couple of governors who used to take people down that section of the river uh, and engage in activities that we would probably find uh, inappropriate, not illegal. <laughs> when I first came here, you know, there were a number of people, some of them were still around and recently still were you know, running for political office who were collectors. So everybody knew that area. Yeah. So he was very much aware of it. I, I think he did have an interest. I don't know that it was a serious interest, you know, as more of a... Right. Just sort of like, a, hey, I'm interested in this area for this reason, and you're interested for this whole other... Yeah, in, in, in the same way. I've always had an interest in birds. Mm-hmm. Always thought that I might have been an ornithologist had I not gotten on this other train. So I have that interest. I have friends that are raptor people, bird people generally. Some of them I know through Pat and so forth, who works not only in South Africa, but in India, Pakistan. So I've retained those interests. But yeah, I think it's true. You know, you talk about an area that everybody knows in different ways, but there's a common history that we all know about mm-hmm. some of that, you know. Mm-hmm. You just hit on this other interesting issue that I just want to ask one follow-up on, the sort of culture around, you know, collecting artifacts, right? And how the Snake River Canyon was an area that people went to long before it was probably protected, you know, to do that, right? Look for... A long history. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, part of it probably has to do with the demographics of the area. You know, it's close to Boise and so forth. It's an area that has always been or was historically saw a lot of recreational use. And I think that was probably part of it. You know, coming from the Midwest, as I did originally, where everybody had a shoebox full of arrowheads, it was kind of like a part-time, pastime kind of thing. And I think traditionally that's been the case here to, to some extent. Go back to the Depression. I remember a lot of the people that I met when I was first here who had an interest in archaeology. That's what they did, you know. Basically unemployed. They went and camped out in some of these places. That was the case in a number of locations in the Owyhees, and they just collected artifacts. At that point in time, there was no real sense that they had been protected since 1906, obviously. Well, I remember when I first came here to Idaho, there was very little in the way of any, well, there was no awareness really at all of the legal issues in terms of collecting from federal land. Some of the sites that we worked at in the Owyhees originally, a couple of years after we had done some testing there, we happened to be back out in the field, looked down the canyon and saw some people doing something on the site, went down and approached them and they were digging, you know, as illicitly and so forth. Pulled a gun on us and we just kind of backed away from them. But I drove back into Grandview and I called up the sheriff at that time and I reported this and he screamed at me and hung up, but this was after he'd said, well, that's not illegal. So there were issues that way, as you can imagine. Warren Durbridge, who was back about 25 years ago, the assistant U.S. attorney for Idaho, he started to prosecute cases, which ultimately, at the end of the day, five years ago, the largest case of this sort in American history was here in Idaho with Jerry Young out of out of Twin Falls, who they had been chasing for decades, trashing sites all over southern Nevada and and northern Nevada, southern Idaho. And he spent time in prison and so forth, but it's a long history. Yeah. From your perspective, do you think 
there's a lot more awareness of... Well, I think there's a lot more awareness because by the 1970s, late 70s, and the 80s, there are a number of cases, not in Idaho at that point in time, but in the region. There was mm-hmm. a case up in Hell's Canyon, for example. There's some in Washington. There's some famous ones down in the American Southwest where people got hit hard mm-hmm. for damaging prehistoric graves and that kind of thing. So the word began to kind of be out. There was a period of time during which it was very difficult to deal with private people at all because of the fear that you found anything and you know, kind of confiscate your property. There was a lot of confusion about the nature of the, of the laws and so forth. And as you're probably aware, I mean, the laws themselves are kind of here and there at different times over the course of the last 30 years in regard to... I think most people now are at least mindful of that. Mm-hmm. It just strikes me just now as I think about this, that seems quite significant to your work. The fact that there's been 100 years of fairly intensive illicit collecting of materials. You know, you talked about like how difficult it is to find sites and artifacts. Like For a long time, people have been out there doing it Illicitly, you know. <laughs> Let me tell you, when the very first trip I took into the Owyhees, we were taking out my bill on staff to Camas uh, Creek, actually, where we did some original work in the mid-1970s. And there were literally sites there where the material on the, on the surface was so dense that you had to be careful that you didn't step on formal tools. You would not even know that there were sites there now. Wow. And they've even collected the debitage. I mean, there's like nothing left in some of these locations. They were prying off literally petroglyphs. I mean, just amazing. But when I first worked out there during that period of time, at the same time that I called them White County Sheriff, he just told me that. Yeah, well, there was one ranger for all the White County. At that time, you could go out there, you know, that summer. We didn't see anybody for a month and a half, you know. Right. So it was easy to go out and be under the radar. And nobody was frankly looking for you anyway at that point in time. It's different. You know, I don't think they have that many more rangers. They do, but not enough to cover but the But is there a way to, like, in. you're doing your research and you're looking at these known sites and using that information to figure out whatever you can figure out about the people that used to live there. Do you factor in the fact that if I found this one site here, there were probably 10 more sites that are invisible now because people have... I think that's probably that. true. Part of it is the nature of the sites themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the sites here are what? They're open sites. Right, and many of them are single component sites. So what you see on the surface didn't result from a single use occupation. Whatever. Well, I've done more work in Idaho than anybody in the history of the state, and I can tell you that I don't think we've ever worked at a site that hadn't been previously visited. There's a site just beyond the bridge at Celebration Park. It's 10 CN1, the first site recorded formally. Must have been an absolute, just incredible site. Unbelievable trashed. We went back a long time ago now. There was some fairly or more recent activity there. The BLMs had come in. Take a look and see if we can establish whether or not there's anything left that's really intact that's worth trying to preserve or monitor. So we did. But in the process of that, one of the things we did was to identify some local informants, some old guys that had been around for a long, long time in the Melba area. And we found two guys that were able to tell us that they remembered, you know, people digging there in the 1930s during the Depression, you know. There's sites as a site at King Hill that we did some work at, I'm confident it's right along the railroad track they put in in 1903. And looking at a number of indicators, I think I wouldn't be surprised at all but what the original disturbance of that location goes back to that period. 
this overview that I wrote of the Snake River Plain, one of the things I did when I was doing that, they're always going to be this in terms of reporting standards and, you know, some of the techniques that we use and how those have changed over time. But I contacted the people at the INEL. They have a big cultural resources program, which you probably know. So they ran a bunch of data back at me for sites that we would look at in a particular way here. And it's remarkable the difference in terms of material densities and so forth of different properties that are within that area, closed down since 1949. Which doesn't mean that people haven't gotten into it, obviously. But at the same time, that record isn't inordinately richer than most of the sites that you see here locally. And now you stop it, you know, part of the threatening people with, you know, legal. I think the better strategy is to hit the kiddies at Celebration Park. Anytime we have an opportunity to talk in any public context, that's one of the themes that you just drive home. Mm-hmm. Is that, hey, these are irreplaceable resources. You know, once they're gone, it's over, you know, to the extent that seeds. I, I don't know, but I hope it does. Yeah, I, talking about that adds some context into the reluctance of Native American people to share information about. <laughs> well, I think that is part of it, you know. <laughs> you know I wouldn't uh, attempt to speak for the tribe in any way. Yeah. I think part of it is political, sure, obviously. Sure, I mean, sure. they're a very political entity, to their credit. Right. <laughs> that doesn't make my job any easier sometimes, you know. Yeah. But. It's a huge problem. It's a bigger problem in the West because we're about 67% federal yeah. in the state of Idaho. And yeah, stuff had, is all over. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the East Coast, and when I moved out, I had no awareness. You know, I had a, a buddy that got pulled over and had an arrowhead he had found in his vehicle and got chewed out by the law enforcement officer and confiscated. And that happened, I was like, Jeez, I have no idea. That well, good for that law to, enforcement. You know, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, more, more uh-huh. I'm not sure that happens all the time. Uh-huh. But like, I had no awareness of it. You yeah. know, uh, I grew up in Indiana. It's largely there's some state forests, you know, but right. it's all private. Right. You know. Right. And if it's in private land, same thing here. Mm-hmm. I, I would tell you that we have not worked on federal property in 15 years. It's just too difficult at this point. In part because, you know, tribal consultation has provided a means by which agencies, I won't be specific, but agencies have to some extent, I think, rationalized buyout in terms of their commitment to the resources. Hmm. It's easy not to move resources to manage something if somebody's making that easy for you. So you haven't done any research on public land in the last 15 years? Mm -hmm. That seems kind of amazing to me, given that the percentage of public land in the state. Well, it's because it's almost impossible. Right. Trying to get approval for uh, to go back and to do some follow-up work in some of the areas that we looked at in the Owyhees years ago just be virtually impossible. Right. The tribe would just automatically oppose it. The same in the, the, in the NCA area, right? Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing going to happen there. All the work that we've done down there, for the most part, outside of some things we've done with the BLM, in terms of the sort of reinvigorating that corridor from Swan Falls, has been at the park. You know, well, that's county. Right. So, you know, not an issue. Now, we have in that context, and to the, to the credit of the parks people, they always kind of kept the tribe in the loop a little bit, which was a smart thing for them to do. And the tribe kind of signed off on, you know, the work that we had done at 10 CN6, which is where the new museum is at. Hmm, interesting. So, the one thing that's changed, 30 years ago, it was virtually impossible to work on private land. 
for all the reasons we were talking about right. before. People were totally confused about the law and everything. Right. And right. it's like, you're going to come in here, and if you find something, then you're going to... Well, Idaho may be still the only state that actually has a law that allows the state of Idaho to come onto your property and confiscate Native American materials if they're encountered inadvertently. That's something that Rick Sprade and the University of Idaho had a hand in sort of getting through and so forth. Mm -hmm. So if inadvertently you pull up in your backyard putting in a new septic tank or something, human remains that are Native American, I mean, if you pull up human remains, period, you know, right. you've got an issue there. But regardless, it's going to the coroner's office. Uh, but if they're Native American and if they're associated materials in those, the state can confiscate those. But otherwise, there's no, you know. But people have were really nervous about that early on. But it was a different age group. It was a different group of folks. Now the people we've been dealing with in the last 15 years are what? They're the kids that inherited the ranch, right? right. Mm -hmm. So they went to college. The kids went to college. And we overlooked the fact that oftentimes that's U of I. But at the end of the day, they're much easier to work with. And, and they're interested. Mm -hmm. You know, they're interested. Interested in record. Interested in knowing. Interested in preserving. And I'd have to say that's a hell of a lot easier to deal with than working with the feds, for example. But you don't always see it in practice. Mm -hmm. you know? Interesting. So when you're like you or any other archaeological researchers looking for new sites to forward your research in any particular topic, like you're not even looking at public land sites, even if for some reason you think there's like a high probability that there's a good site. In some it's, area. it's it's generally too difficult. If there were that one site, <laughs> then maybe, right. you know, if you but, thought it was worth the. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it would really have to be a sure thing. You know, yeah, it's just become incredibly difficult. For that reason. It's something I predicted here based off of what happened in California 25 years ago, where they allowed, you know, tribal consultation to get to the point that everything just got shut down. And two things have happened there. You know, there's much more work on private lands and on the historic side, which I would predict that you'll see here as well. I mean, there's a growing interest in historic archaeology here anyway. You know, and there are tons of historic archaeologies that nobody's looked at at all. I mean, there's more on archaeology. There's what? What else do we have? We've got Japanese, and we've got the internment camp thing. Right. We have CO camp in Idaho. Uh, we've got CCC camps here all over the place. And there's cowboy or buckaroo archaeology in the Owyhee country, the Chinese stuff, for example. So I think you're going to probably see more of that as it becomes increasingly difficult to work on public lands in particular. Most of the work done on public lands now is done in the context of cultural resource management projects that are 106 related. So they're bringing in a private contractor, and there's more and more of that because of the Trump administration's recent sort of moves to take all work out of the agencies and have it be on the private side, which, you know, frankly, and cultural, I don't know that that's a bad thing at one level for reasons that I you know, probably have some connection to, but regardless. So most of it is that kind of work that's being done. It's a survey work. And so it goes, you know, into that great gray hole of, you know, nothingness that doesn't get reported in any usable way. But even if it did, uh, I don't know, a thousand acre survey somewhere in the Owyhee country, something that everybody would say, well, you know, we really need to do something about that. Maybe. Maybe. I think one tactic is to try to get the tribe on board in terms of how great the impact is going to be to a property. You're much more likely to get tribal support that way than for a project that's just exploratory, which potentially leaves in a position of having to defend <laughs> the archaeological interpretation of something that might, you know. I mean, they love us when we work for them. 
make the case or whatever. They dislike us a lot and then the result is apart from what they say. But at any rate, I don't know, it's going to continue to be an issue. That was Dr. Mark Plew, professor of anthropology and archaeology at Boise State University. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle.